Welcome to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes commentary on the Middle East and questions for U.S. foreign policy. You can read our work at www.hoover.org caravan. In addition, we explore various topics about the Middle East on our podcasts, the Caravan Podcast. New podcasts appear about twice a month. Please follow us. I'm Russell Berman, co-director of the Working Group, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Elham Manea. Dr. Manea is an associate professor at the Institute for Political Science at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. She specializes in Middle East studies, including the role of women in Islam, human rights, developments in Yemen, and, this is our topic today, the spread of Islamism as ideology. Elhamania's book, The Perils of Nonviolent Islamism, has just been released by Telos Press Publishing in New York. You can find it online at, if this is one word, telospress, T-E-L-O-S-P-R-E-S-S-S dot com. For the sake of transparency, I have to add that I wrote the introduction to the book, so I am all the happier to be able to speak with Elham today. Elham, thanks for joining me today. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. I think it would be helpful for our listeners if you could begin by talking a bit about your own background, and you talk about this in the book, your experiences in Morocco and Yemen, and your own young episode with Islamism. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much, Russell. I really appreciate uh, this invitation and also your introduction uh, to my book. Um, My background, I guess I can... um, I would basically describe myself as a kind of um, a global nomad um, in terms of um, being born and raised in different countries. <laughs> uh, I was born in Egypt. Uh, my mother uh, has Egyptian roots there. That's why every time she had a child, she went there and she gave birth. But that's two persons, my brother and I. And at the same time, my father is Yemeni and um, he was a diplomat and we moved a lot in different countries including morocco and that was i actually lived four years in morocco and during that period um i got to um in fact let me just put it this way the different countries that i traveled in um with different islamic uh, traditions has shown me the diversity and the richness Uh, of this culture and of this religious tradition. Morocco was one of these countries that showed you a side of uh, Islam at the time, it was late 70s, um, where you realize that um, it was a mixture of um, Sunni, but also Sufi uh, um, reading of religion. One that is very relaxed, I'll put it this way. And, I finished, we finished there, um, returned back to Yemen, 82, 83. And there I got to see a different form of religion. And it was only in the school, high school that I got to, I'll put it this way, I got a taste of how easy you could be um, 
locked and seduced uh, by this political ideology, if I may put it this way. And um, what I mean, uh, what I mean is um, a religious form uh, of ideology, Islamism. And there, in that school, um, through, in six months, uh, I was a changed person. I come from a very liberal family, a father who you could call a free thinker, um, a mother who believed uh, in a very um, uh, Sufi way, I put it this way, loving way. She, she loved more um, in her belief. And then you go to uh, um, this school, you get to know this group with the very charismatic leaders, and you have this message, which gives you um, when I use the word seduce, I meant it, and it was seducing given also my background. My background was a little bit complex. As I said, mother Egyptian roots, father Yemeni. I was never accepted, neither in, neither in Yemen nor uh, in Egypt. I was in Yemen called the tall Egyptian uh, because of my height compared to my Yemeni um, uh, schoolmates. And when you look at that, um, the message that I got from my group was none other, you don't really have to choose between your nationalities because at the end of the day, you're just one, you are Muslim. That's the identity. That's the way you can basically uh, look through the world. And it's interesting how they, how through this group, I got a kind of a glimpse on how they can really um, separate you from your own surrounding. Um, it's more of, it, uh, um, it works like a sect, I'll put it this way, uh, in terms almost like a sect, a sect that takes you away from your own society, from your own family, a sect that um, gives you a certain reading of religion that tells you everybody around you, we lived in a, a Muslim society, everybody was Muslim, with the exception, of course, of our Yemeni uh, uh, Jewish minority, but it's a very small minority and it doesn't exist today, unfortunately, because of this religious ideology. But in any case, um, they tell you all of this society, they're not really real Muslims. In fact, you live in an ocean of people who really deviant from Islam. We are the only real Muslims. And it's this experience uh, that gave me a taste how easy it is possible to radicalize young men and women. Um, and uh, I used it later afterwards when I started to um, research this ideology um, closer. I'll put it this way. Okay, thank you. That, that's, that's very useful. I hope it's useful for our listeners. You describe a journey really from an experience of a um, tolerant Islam in Morocco to a more conservative Islam in in Yemen, and then even within Yemen, this Islamist group that's uh, radical in a different way. And against that personal background, against your own journey, can we try to sort out the larger field of concepts? Now I'm speaking to you as a scholar. You know, what is Islamism? Uh, how do you see its relationship to Islam? 
And what's your point in distinguishing between violent and nonviolent Islamism? Um, Islamism is a political ideology, a religious political ideology. Okay? And, and the manner by which I described it right now, it shows you that it is a construction, a construction based on two pillars. The first is a religious interpretation of Islam, a fundamentalist one, I'll put it this way. And it is a modern interpretation, a modern fundamentalist um, interpretation of Islam that came about in the 18th century. And at the same time, a political ideology, a political ideology um, that was that started in the uh, beginning of the 20th century by the um, creator or the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna. And uh, the political ideology has a structure, has a system, has a strategy, and that is all is described in their um, literature. Uh, even how you educate children, how you, um, I'll put it this way, indoctrinate them into this political ideology is also described in their literature. On the other hand, the religious interpretation, this is a kind, um, it's so vast. It's based on um, modern um, movement um, that started uh, in two areas, if I may say, one in the heart of uh, Arabian Peninsula, that is national Saudi Arabia, and the other one in um, Southeast Asia, uh, uh, Asian, that is um, um, in the Giubandi movement. Both of them have one thing in common. They look in their interpretation of Islam through the eyes of a famous scholar that lived in the 13th century, and that is Ibn Taymiyyah. And this scholar, religious scholar, brought about a certain rigid puritanical um, worldview um, that um, separated uh, from other uh, strands of Islam. So we're talking, when we talk about uh, Islamism, we talk about a religious political ideology. Uh, Islam is a religion, a world religion, a civilization, has different strands and currents. Islamism is based on one interpretation of a religion, a fundamentalist one, an extremist one. And that's why it is difficult for us to say uh, that religion has nothing to do with it. Yes, religion has to do with it, but it has to do with it in as far as we look at this um, uh, fundamentalist interpretation. Okay, um, so it's, um, it's political because it wants to change the political world. It draws on religion, but it draws on Islam selectively. It only draws on a part of Islam. Is that, is that a right way to put it, understand it? It's a right way uh, of looking at it because uh, on the one hand, it looks at the history of um, this religion and selects certain chapters and create, that's why I say it's a construction, I create a construction that has very little to do with history, if I may put it. Um, it's very regressive in the manner by which it looks um, at uh, um, Instead of looking forward, they look at um, the, uh, the, force, the first um, 
40 years uh, of the Islamic State, and they consider it um, the role model upon which we should uh, follow. And at the same time, the aim uh, is not peaceful, I'll put it this way. Uh, if you look at the work and the writing of um, Hassan al-Banna, for instance, uh, um, Abu al-Ala al-Mawdudi, who is the founder of uh, the twin kind of uh, uh, political movement, political Islam movement in South Asian context. It's called Al-Jama'at al-Islamiyah. If you look at their writings, on the one hand, they insist that um, a state should be an Islamic state, and that state um, has the responsibility, if I may put it this way, to spread Islam worldwide because the idea is that according to them Muslim had to be the master of the world and violence is very core in terms of how you spread that message however um, you will see for instance that Hassan al-Banna when he describes violence you you ask me how do you distinguish between non-violent uh, Islamism and violent Islamism I'm saying um, I actually see a spectrum uh, and this distinction that we always try to say this is that you have jihadi Islam this jihadi Islam is uh, uh, different from the modern the so-called moderate uh, Islam well um, it seems to be it's more theoretical than reflecting a real um, um, it's more theoretical because uh, if you look at it it is a spectrum and the violence comes at the end before that violence comes you need a cognitive form of radicalization and this cognitive form of radicalization is provided by nonviolent uh, islamism through the writing through the selective way they look uh, at religion uh, because islam just like any other religion has different sides Mm -hmm. It has violent and it has peaceful sides. And they seem to be focusing more on the violent chapters of this uh, world religion. And in that, um, um, send a message to those who are following it. Islam is under attack. We are, um, we should react and um, dying uh, in the purpose of that defense is certainly glorious according to their interpretation. Okay, that's the genealogy of Islamism from its selective reading of Islam. But now we're facing Islamism in the West, um, where many features of Islamist ideology seem to be at odds with the culture of liberal democracy. Nonetheless, we see Islamism spreading and that's why you warn against its perils. That's the title of your book. Uh, how is Islamism able to spread in the West? What are the features of Western culture, in your view, that enable this repressive ideology to flourish? I mean, you live in the West, you live in Switzerland, you work in a modern university. Why is Islamism attractive? I think an answer would look at two levels. The first level is the policy makers uh, that we have in different countries. Um, and very often, um, 
these policymakers for a long time did not inform themselves, I'll put it this way, okay? And um, that led uh, to them looking for um, partners uh, uh, of the Muslim communities. Now, if you look at the, all of these European countries, you have um, migrant communities coming to Switzerland, to France, to Germany, France because of its colonial past, to Britain because of its colonial past. All of these members of the former colonies came, came and lived uh, in these countries. And then you have when it comes to the German speaking countries, you have another development and that has to do very much with um, workers. They were needed for their labor. And the idea for many of these countries, and I'm talking here about Germany, Austria and Switzerland, they thought that these migrants will just work and go back home. Um, over time it became clear that's not the case because they came, they sat, uh, and uh, they stayed and they also um, developed, they lived in these uh, countries. Um, now, the thing is, if you look at all of these, if we talk specifically about communities of, uh, uh, of diverse Islamic faiths, um, you would see that they are actually, there's much diversity. Uh, they come from different countries. They have different traditions. And at the same time, um, um, their relationship to their religion um, is somehow similar to how you would say about Christian communities who are, are you're either um, very faithful, conservative, liberal, atheists, all of these terms you can use when you apply them on Muslim communities. The problem is Islamists, they came, they started to arrive to European countries starting from the 60s and the 70s due to several developments that has to do with the manner by which they were persecuted in their own countries. And when they came here at the beginning, they were very much preoccupied with the situation in their uh, countries, home countries. Over the time, however, and that started specifically in the 80s and 90s, they started to realize right now maybe it's the time that we also work here in these European countries because we're living here and we're not going back. And they started to look and focus their energy on Muslim communities. What they had in comparison to other Muslim civil society actors, I'll use these words, okay, was good mobilization structures, much resources, flushed uh, with money coming from the Gulf countries that were sponsoring them at the time, and at the same time, um, a very uh, clear idea that when we speak, we speak in the name of Muslims. We're speaking in the name of Muslims. Um, in reality, they were speaking uh, in, the, in the name of the Islamist agenda because they have different views in terms of how you practice religion um, than, I would put it, than others, okay? The problem was basically the policymakers. These policymakers who, in fact, 
took that at face value. When they heard the loudest, they took them for the speakers of the Muslim communities and their demands for the demands of all Muslims and ignored in the, uh, in the process the diversity um, in these communities and turned them into the gatekeepers of these communities. And that had uh, dire consequences. And you will see in the book, I talked about two case studies, one about Molenbeek in Belgium, and at the same time, uh, the Swedish uh, case. And you will see here uh, a combination of um, naivety, um, lack of due diligence uh, has led to a situation where um, Islamists became the speakers of Muslims. And that led to their ability to work with children and youth, educate them according to their uh, curriculum. These curriculum have a politicized ideology, a politicized form of a religion, and that reflected on the second and third generation, at least segment of them in, um, in many of these European countries. So on, on the one side, there's the genealogy of Islamism from within Islam, Islamism, the Middle East. Um, on the other hand, there are bad decisions by Western policymakers that have given the Islamists a disproportionate voice in, uh, the, in the political process. Now, the question of Islamism has recently become front page news in France. Uh, there was the uh, tragic beheading of uh, Samuel Paty, a teacher in a French high school um, outside of Paris. There were the killings in a cathedral in Nice. Uh, President Macron has initiated a campaign against what he calls separatism. That's his term, separatism. Um, how do you see these developments in France? I actually um, uh, welcomed uh, the, these measures of Macron because it was about time that um, the state takes clear measures against Islamism, against these structures. Because what he's trying right now to do is to dismantle the structures of Islamism that enabled them to mainstream their ideology. And I think he's speaking, um, uh, we, have, we have to uh, address two issues here. Um, when it comes to France, you have Salafi structures. Salafi um, uh, is a new fundamentalist movement uh, that came about in the 18th century. Uh, we're talking about the Wahhabi form, the, the one that came, that, that comes from Saudi Arabia. And at the same time, um, these Salafi structures have become very strong um, uh, in terms of the way they control um, uh, the banlieue, uh, the um, uh, suburbs in certain areas in, in cities uh, of uh, France. And they have such a control that it's becoming very important to dismantle their structures because when he used the word separatism, everybody criticized him, but in fact, that's exactly what they're doing. And that has to do also with the ideological 
um, the, sorry, the theological um, features of this religious interpretation. It, uh, you have two very important um, features. Uh, one is Tawheed, that is basically the oneness of God, according to this reading of Islam. One, um, uh, there are many ways of, of believing in oneness of God, but those who are uh, saved, if I may put, uh, put it this way, those who are the chosen group are the one who know how to address God in a very direct manner. And in that, um, this reading insists that everybody, including Muslims, who do not practice this form of Tawheed, of oneness of God, they are not Muslims. Uh, they should be um, shunned away. And that combined with another feature, and that is al-wala' uh, wal-bara'a. And al-wala' wal-bara'a is the loyalty. You have to be loyal to this oneness of God. You have to be loyal to everything that, God's, uh, that God demands from you. And if you are that loyal, you have to actually hate those who are not followers of your reading of Islam in three manners, by your words, by your deeds, and if you cannot, by your heart. You have to hate those who are practicing what he called the creator of, uh, of, uh, of this reading of Islam, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, what he called the um, polytheist. And with that, he demands from them, from those followers, you have to separate yourself from those around you from this society because it's so corrupt, you will be corrupted if you inter, um, uh, communicate or um, uh, interact with them. So separatism is actually the accurate term to describe how this form of fundamentalism combined with the political ideology of political Islamism, how they work and how they separate um, uh, Muslim communities from their surrounding uh, society. Well, President Macron's policy against separatism is going to remain controversial and debated in France. But in the meantime, you're in Switzerland and Islamism has become a topic there as well. Uh, I believe there's a referendum coming up to ban the burqa, if that's the right way to phrase it. Uh, can you tell us about the Swiss development and how do you how do you um, evaluate the referendum? Mm -hmm. No, um, I think one should basically explain what happened because I'm not going to start with Islamism here, okay? Because uh, uh, I will start with um, a very conservative um, right group which in fact started the referendum. You know, we, thank God we live in, an, uh, in a direct democracy and um, um, people can launch um, uh, a referendum. And it's the very group that launched a referendum on the banning of Minaret and they won in that. And to be honest, and I still, until today, I um, criticize that ban and I still criticize it because they um, 
through that ban, they specifically um, targeted one religious group. My argument was, you want to uh, ban religious symbols then from all religious groups, but don't just target one group, and in this case, the Muslim uh, group. When it comes to the uh, burqa, actually the referendum is formulated in a way that it is a ban on all form of masking um, in public spaces, with the exception those of the health uh, that are caused by health reasons. We are, everybody now knows what that means uh, because of the corona. Um, uh, carnivals, we have carnivals and people really cover everything. And at the same time, um, uh, because of security, police uh, or security uh, forces that has to uh, wear a helm, or those who are driving, for instance. I mean, they gave certain exceptions. So the formulation of this um, referendum um, is in fact, um, you can, without any problem say, that formulation can be, um, uh, legally uh, unproblematic. Um, at the same time, if you look at the Human Rights Court, the European Human Rights Court, twice they supported a ban on this form of um, um, clothing. It's important to realize that, in fact, they formulated in that way, but the real addressee of this uh, uh, referendum is in fact, they call it the burqa, and the burqa is the one that one sees um, in Afghanistan. In fact, what they mean is a niqab, which is the, 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 the type of clothes, the, the whole kind of like black um, uh, cloth that covers uh, the woman's face and whole body. And it comes in fact from also from the very heart of the very interpretation I talked about, Salafism. Um, how do I um, how do I position myself? Uh, on the one hand, I criticize the very group that launched this uh, referendum because um, when they started, they started to say we're doing it for the Muslim women. Well, with all due respect, you never stood. Uh, for women's rights, not in your country, uh, and you actually stood against uh, any forms of women's rights um, demands in, for the Swiss women. So it's a little bit of Hippocratic to tell me that you're doing this for the Muslim uh, woman when you didn't do it for your own um, Swiss woman, okay? That said, I can also distinguish um, between those who started it and between the, the need from my perspective to set or to express a clear sign um, that such, because here I'm speaking specifically about this niqab, about this form of face cover, um, where I say it has no, um, place um, in, a, in a country that has in its 
constitution enshrine um, equality uh, and gender uh, emancipation because the very um, ideology that propagate this form of cloth has nothing to do with democracy. It's a symbol for me. And a symbol for an ideology that uh, um, allowed enslavement of Yazidi, a woman uh, in um, uh, by Daesh or ISIS in 2014 and 2015. Until today, we still have women who are still missing, who are still enslaved by this group. Um, it's the very ideology that tells you it is okay for a husband to beat his wife. It's the very ideology that tells you it is okay to marry a child at nine years old. And you see what they're saying about that. And it's the very ideology that tells a woman that you really have to um, erase your individuality, your personality, your existence um, in the name of protecting um, men uh, from seduction. Um, in other words, I have, I, I took a position where I said, while I understand the problematic nature from which group this is coming, there are arguments that we can in fact um, use to say, yes, this kind of clothing has no place. That, that, how should I say, that subjugate women in that way has no place um, in, in the society. And I guess I also, I'm also, I'm impacted by my own background, my own travels, my own research, because I research in doing field work. I did that in Britain. I did that in South Africa. I travel a lot in the Middle East and I've seen the developments. And in South Africa, they started with a group, few numbers, and now you see uh, children wearing um, uh, the, the, the niqab, children. Um, and I see that in Yemen, where children are right now also forced to wear that. And I see that in um, also in other uh, Arabian Peninsula countries. So without, without recognizing that we are dealing with an ideology that is um, spreading, um, we cannot live here in Switzerland thinking that we are um, uh, uh, an island uh, because we're not an island. And yes, um, our situation cannot in any way be compared with the situation in France, with the situation in Belgium, the situation in, in Sweden. Um, but nevertheless, um, I believe sometimes one has to stand and say, um, until here, I'm not, a and not one step further. Um, these are the rules of the game, and these rules apply to everybody, including seeing the face of a human being. 
Thank you. That was a, a very nuanced and complex answer. And too often in these debates, we only hear polarized positions. So it's refreshing to hear, um, hear a thoughtful analysis. Let me ask one final question, Elham. Uh, clearly, you're critical of Islamism, uh, but you yourself are a Muslim. And you participate in a kind of reform stream, as I understand it. Um, uh, can you tell our listeners about um, your religious community, how it's perceived on the part of the Swiss in general, how it's perceived by more uh, traditional parts of the Muslim community? I think it's, I, I would put it this way. Um, it's um, a budding movement, but it's growing. I'll, I'll put it this way. And um, in fact, it started, um, I got to know um, um, this, well, I'll put it this way. Since 2004, I started to write in Arabic about reform and demands for reform of this religion, okay? And, and the demands came about as uh, a call that we have to move away from this politicized form of religion that spread because of the, uh, the structure that mainstream it, because of the work of states in supporting such kind of uh, religious, uh, politicized form of uh, religion. Um, and the main demand was we need to have um, a spiritual relationship between a human being and a higher um, force called God, called Allah, you call it whatever you want. But at the same time that uh, this religion has to be also, uh, I need to believe in a faith that, that allows me to, that respects my humanity, that respects my dignity, and that, that actually is embracing uh, to others regardless of their religion, of gender, uh, sexual orientation. And at the beginning, I was thinking I was alone. Over the time, I realized that was not only um, naive, it was, only, uh, it was also wrong. Because in addition to all of those uh, intellectuals and writers who wrote since many decades about reform in their own capacities, in their own uh, fields, you also have within European and North American context, uh, a budding movements of groups coming together and saying, why can't a woman lead a prayer, for instance? Uh, why can't we have mosques uh, uh, mixed where men and women can pray together? open uh, to set a different sexual orientation. Why can't we be, um, why can't we do that? And um, I got to learn that from uh, the Inclusive Mosque Initiative in the, in the UK where I was invited to pray there, uh, to lead a prayer. They asked me to give a lecture about Sharia law. I did that and then, and about Islamic law, I'm sorry. I did that and then I, um, no, it's not, it wasn't Islamic law. It was about uh, humanistic Islam, the concept that I was uh, uh, preaching in Arabic. And then afterwards, I brought that idea here. Um, and together with Yasmina Sumbati, um, 
we um, a, a good friend, Amira Hafner, women who want um, to change. Um, we did mixed prayer and you see this movement in South Africa where I was invited to lead a, a, a prayer uh, there, a mixed prayer. You see it in the United States uh, as well uh, with Annie's on the film, who is in California, in fact, and has a big community. Um, what I'm trying to say, we are small maybe, but the manner by which we are addressing this issue, we seem to have an echo within the younger generation. And right now here, I had to basically focus on my work. You can't do everything, you know. Um, but you see Karim Adigzol, a young um, Swiss uh, of Turkish roots, who has his mosque with a group of young men and women coming together, um, providing um, what I could would call as a different way of approaching religion than this politicized form uh, of Islam. And um, I have hope. Uh, people think I'm crazy, but I have hope. Uh, I have hope because I believe um, the future is for us or for those who don't want any religion. Uh, it's, uh, the future is, um, will be for um, an Islam that is, how should I say, comfortable with itself, with its place, and with others. That I hope, at least that's my dream, but I believe that will be the case. Well, ending on a note of hope is a good way to conclude. Elham, thank you for the conversation. Uh, I know we've learned a lot about Islamism and the situation in parts of Europe, as well as about Islam and the hope for the future. Elham Ania's book, The Perils of Nonviolent Islamism, is available at telospress.com. As always, I want to thank our listeners. You can follow the Hoover's Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at www.hoover.org caravan. Please return to listen to our future discussions of the Caravan podcast toward the middle of the month when my colleague Cole Bunzel will interview Mike Duran about his essay on Turkey and its geostrategy. You can find the essay at the Caravan. I'll be back in about a month, and I hope you'll join us again. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.